Good morning. For those of you who um, missed the time change last week, in our last session together, we began a new series of messages that will help us to uh, renew our sense of hope, to uh, keep hope alive and to be hopeful once again. We live in a world that uh, seems to be in many ways hopeless and at many times we're offered uh, many, uh, well, we're offered remedies, so to speak, that uh, give us nothing more than a false sense of hope. And oftentimes we're led to believe that somehow or another we have some control over our destiny. And I think one of my favorite stories that illustrates both of those truths is a story of uh, two men who are riding down a road on a wintry, cold, blustery day on a motorcycle. And the further they got, the colder it got, and finally the passenger tapped the driver and said, would you pull over for a second? So he pulled over and the passenger turned his jacket around and reversed it so that the wind wouldn't get caught up inside. He put his arms through the other way and shut it up and pulled it behind him and that kept the wind from blowing against him. Anyway, as they were driving down the street, they hit a cold, they hit a, a, a patch of ice. And the motorcycle went into the tree and into a tree head first and it killed the driver instantly and it stunned the passenger who had reversed his coat. When the coroner came upon the scene, he ran into a rookie police officer and he asked him what he had found when he got to the scene. And the rookie police officer said, well, when we got there, the driver had been killed on impact. He said, and by the time we turned the other guy's head around, he was dead too. <laughs> you know, many of us believe that there's a sense of hope and somehow or another we can do something about the situation sometimes that we find ourselves in. You know, today as we continue our series, we'll look into an area that, of life that at one time or another will be common to every one of us. You know, as you look around this room, you'll notice that, uh, that we're different. You know, you just look around and uh, we're different. You know, we dress differently. We act differently. Um, you know, we look differently. Uh, we don't look alike. We don't dress alike. We have different tastes in food. We have different tastes as far as hobbies are concerned and things that we like to do. We have different tastes in magazines that we read or newspapers or books, uh, the music that we listen to. I mean, we're just different. And as you look around, it's not hard to see that. You know, our weights vary, our heights vary, the color of our skin varies. But one thing that is common to each one of us, or certainly will be at different times in our life, is the fact that, you know what, no matter all of those differences, the one thing that we have in common is that we all know what it means to hurt. You see, it doesn't really matter whether you're a Christian, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Muslim, whether you're white, red, yellow, black, brown. Those things really don't matter whether you're a child or an adult. Every one of us knows the sting of pain, the sting of heartache and misery, disease and disaster, and uh, trials and sufferings. I like what uh, Joseph Parker, who was a great preacher of years gone by, he once said this to a group of aspiring young preachers. He said, if you preach to the suffering, if you preach to the suffering, you will never lack a congregation, for there is a broken heart in every pew. Boy, and there's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? There's a broken heart in every pew. And that's really the focus of our message today as we return to our study in the book of 1 Peter. If you'll turn with me to the first chapter, we'll look at verses 1 through 9 as uh, we learn as we go through this particular section that, you know what, there's hope as we learned last time, there's hope beyond failure. In this particular message, we're going to learn that there's hope beyond suffering. And that's good news because each of us, as I said, at some point in time or another, will suffer in some way. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we read this in verses 1 through 9. It says that Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, 
even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. In our session when we met together last time, we learned that, you know, we can have our, ho our hope restored, our hope renewed, our hope be kept alive by remembering Peter and his background and his failures. This man who identifies himself in this opening salutation as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, we know that was not a man who did not have his faults. There are many times in Peter's life where he failed and failed quite miserably. And in fact, if, if many of us would have had much higher expectations of Peter than, than Jesus Christ did. Peter was a man who put himself in the forefront as the spokesman for that inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. And in many times he spoke out and said things, and he, and, he, and he said many good things. But here was a man who knew what it meant to be a failure and failed on many occasions. There are many times in Peter's life where he blew it. He was a man who, by his impulsive nature, had a way of saying things at the wrong time, being able to stick his foot in his mouth, so to speak. And in, one, in, in several particular instances I can think of, here was a man who said, when Jesus said, who do they say that I am? He said, you are the Christ. You're the Savior of the world. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, hey, you, you did a good job. And then right after that, Jesus said how he would have to suffer and die, and yet he would be raised again. And Peter, right after he had just said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die. Peter says, no, you're not. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Oh, all within a period of a couple of minutes. You've done good. You blew it again. Peter was good at that. He had a way of just taking things and just getting himself into all kind of trouble. Peter was the one from, from the one who said, Lord, if that's really you walking out there on the water, call me out to you. Come on, Peter, it's me. Okay, save me! As he began to sink. From call me out to help me. What in the world was this guy, I mean, what was he thinking? He just had a tendency to go from one extreme to the other. I like it. From, I won't deny you. Everyone here might. Not me. Oh, Peter, you will. Not me. From that to a little girl. I don't, I, I, I don't even know him. Don't even know who he is. And he began to swear at those who said, but you are with him. From the one who said, Lord, you know I love you. Lord, you know I love you. Well, if you love me, then tend my sheep. But Lord, you know I love you. Well, if you love me, then feed my flock. Well, Lord, you know I love you. He said, okay, Peter, I know you love me. From that to, what's going to happen to this guy? This guy John here, what's going to happen to him? To Jesus saying, you follow me. Don't worry about what's going to happen to him. Peter was a man who knew failure quite intimately. And he learned from it. And so as we look at all this and we see the broken pieces of Peter, that God is able to take those broken pieces and turn them into a masterpiece, the thing that I get excited about is this. There is hope for every one of us. There's hope for all of us. There's hope beyond failure. And do you know why? Because it's not in our hands to try to put those pieces together, but it's in God's hands. And if he can take the broken pieces of Peter's miserable failures and turn them into a masterpiece of Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, I don't know how hopeless you think it is in your situation today. But one thing I'm convinced of is this. With God, nothing's impossible. And Peter reminds us of that. The second thing that we also saw is that he was writing to those who were aliens, who were scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. All these places are in Asia Minor today. These are people that he was writing to that were scattered all over the place. And he focused on one subject that will draw every one of those people together. And that's the subject of suffering, which we'll discuss in our session today. Every one of those people were drawn together by one common experience, and that was that they were being persecuted, and that they were suffering, and that they would continue to suffer, and as much as they thought it was bad now, they didn't even begin to realize how bad it was going to get. It was kind of one of those things. You know, they say, you know, cheer up, things could get worse. 
So I cheered up, and things got worse. It's that type of thing. He's saying, hey, I want to encourage you now, because as bad as you think it is, it's going to get worse. And from the date that we see that Peter wrote to these people who were scattered about, and they were persecuted because of their faith, and they were scattered all over the place, from the date of this writing, we know that what he was saying was true, because this letter was written around 63 A.D. Well, anybody that knows any history knows that in 64 A.D., Rome burned, and Nero blamed Christians for the burning of Rome. And so the persecution spread out like wildfire. All of a sudden, it was open season on anybody who identified themselves with Jesus Christ. And the persecution that they were going through just being scattered was nothing compared to what was in store for them in the future. And in fact, history tells us that Nero would take Christians and he would pour asphalt over, over them and he would take them and he would light their bodies and he would put their bodies as torches out in their garden. The original tiki torch concept. That's what he did. He took Christians and he burned them alive so that he could light his gardens at night. And he had a great time doing it. You know, the church understood persecution. Peter understood persecution because it was under, under Nero that ultimately he would be condemned to death and they would be crucified upside down and he would die. But he was saying to these people who were suffering, he's saying, hey, you know what? Cheer up because it's going to get worse, but that's okay because I got some great news I want to share with you in the upcoming verses, which weren't verses then, but in the paragraph that was about to follow, I was going to cheer you up. And that's exactly what he does. See, our hope is centered. You know, and, and what we need to understand is this. What Peter's about to share with them and us is not some positive thing, thinking, possibility thinking approach to overcome suffering in your life. Please understand something here. Our hope is not centered on our own ability to rise up above our circumstances. Our hope is not centered in our own ability to suck it up and somehow to endure. Our hope is not centered on man or man's abilities. Our hope is centered in God. And that's what he's trying to get across here. Because if you center your hope or you found your hope on people, you will be sorely disappointed. If your hope is based on you, your abilities, your intelligence, uh, your, your love for the Lord, uh, your courage, your strength, if it's founded on that, you will miserably fail. And that's what Peter found out. My hope was founded upon my abilities, my strengths to say, no one will, hey, I, they'll all deny you. I won't deny you. I'll be there for you. My hope, my ability is founded on my strength that, hey, when you came to arrest you, I pulled out my sword and I was going to attack these people and I was going to defeat them all. And, and he was crushed and he was broken and he realized that my hope isn't centered in me. Thank God our hope's not centered in us. Thank God our hope's not centered in the person sitting next to you or somebody else that you know because they will fail you. But God won't. And that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to take us who are suffering in some way, take these people who are suffering in some way, and he's trying to take them from looking around and putting their attention and focusing their attention, uh, th their attention uh, on God who's able to deliver us from the misery that comes with suffering. There is hope beyond suffering, but it's centered in the person and the work of God. And that's what he begins to share with us, and that's what we need to take a look at. Uh, Warren Worsby has a little book called Be Hopeful. It's a kind of a commentary of 1 Peter. And I like what he wrote, and I want to share that with you as it introduces what we're about to discuss. He says, The important thing for us to know about these scattered strangers is that they were going through a time of suffering and persecution. At least 15 times in this letter, Peter refers to suffering, and he used eight different Greek words to do so. Some of these Christians were suffering because they were living godly lives and doing what was good and what was right. Others were suffering reproach for the name of Christ, and they were being railed at by unsafe people. Peter wrote to encourage them to be good witnesses to their persecutors and to remember that their suffering ultimately would lead to glory. He wrote to them to be good witnesses to their persecutors? Wow. See, I don't know about you, but when someone insults me, my first reaction is to insult them back. When someone is to accuse me of something, my first immediate reaction is to defend myself. When somebody does something to hurt me, my first reaction is, I want to hurt them back. And what he's saying here is that Peter writes to these people and to us to say, hey, I want you to be good witnesses to your persecutors. And as we'll see as we go through the study, he certainly has some recommendations on how to do that. 
But one thing that it reminds us as we go through this is, he says this, that we are, uh, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. I like what he says. He's, tr- he's trying to set this up by saying, don't ever forget who you are. You are chosen by God the Father before the foundations of the world. And it's really important that we understand this because what I'm about to share with you all hinges upon our understanding of this truth. To be chosen or to foreknow means this, to set one's love on a person or persons in a personal way. In Amos 3, 2, we read this, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. God speaking of the nation of Israel that he had foreknown and set his love upon them. And the question that each of us have and we wrestle with is this, why did he pick the nation of Israel? Why those people, of all the people that were on the face of the earth, why did he choose them? And the answer is very simple, because he chose them. It's important to understand this. Did they deserve it? No. Did they do anything to stand out above the rest of the nations of the world? No. Were they always obedient to God? Absolutely not. Did they fail miserably? On a regular basis. Yet God still chose them or set his love on them. Important because this, he says this about us. You also were chosen in the same way. God set his love upon you and upon me. Why deserved it? Absolutely not. The Bible says, for while we were sinners, yet sinners, God demonstrated his love. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. We were chosen by God. Why? Because he chose us. Don't get a headache trying to figure out why. It'll just, and that's all it'll do is give you a headache. We were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit that you may obey Jesus Christ and may be sprinkled with his blood. Here's the way this works. God chose us. The Spirit of God sanctified us or set us apart from everybody else that's in the world. Okay, that we're strangers and aliens. And the Son died for us and set us free from sin or redeemed us. Here's how this works. Before the foundation of the world, God chose me. Make this personal. Before the foundation of the world, God chose me. Okay? The Son of God, Jesus Christ, died for me and He redeemed me. The Spirit of God came into my life when I received Jesus Christ on February 16, 1978, and he set me apart for God's purposes. The ministry of God in the form of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is introduced here, and all three ministries are vital for genuine conversion. God chose me, the Son died for me, the Spirit has sanctified me and set me apart. This is important. Because as we are about to see in this next section, everything that we're going to learn hinges upon that truth. So here's six reasons to be hopeful according to what Peter writes to this particular group of people that are set apart or strangers in a strange land. Six reasons to be hopeful. Number one, we have a living hope. We have a living hope. That's what he says, the very first thing that we see. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. Our hope is alive. Our hope is alive. And one of the interesting things as we consider suffering in our lifetime, what we need to recognize and understand is this. Suffering isn't the end of the story in the life of the Christian. Do you understand that? That's not the end of the book. That's not the last chapter. We may suffer while we're here on earth, but that's not the end of the story. I like what one man said. He said this, you know what? Who can mind the journey if the road leads home? Who can mind the journey if the road leads home? And the point that he's making is this. If suffering is part of our journey, should we really, make, should we really mind that much because we already know where we're going. Big deal. It's kind of like, if you already know you won the game, does it really matter how much you suffer in the midst of it before you end up coming out a winner? And so what God is saying is, hey, you know what? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in His great mercy has given us hope. 
You know, unfortunately for many people in the world we live in, and I think this guy sums it up best, H.L. Mekin was a, a cynical writer, American newspaper man, during the early half of the century, and he wrote this. He referred to hope as, quote, a pathological belief in the occurrence of the impossible. Wow. Isn't that pathetic? Isn't that tragic? A pathological belief in the occurrence of the impossible? What I understand from all this is this. If God... The Father allowed Jesus Christ to suffer and to go through all that he went through, the agony in the garden, being tortured, being arrested, the, indignant, the, the indignation of being uh, put on a cross at the crossroads of a culture where people would come by and they would rail insults at him. If God allowed Jesus to go through all of that, and the Bible says in Hebrews 12 that he endured that, he endured that pain. He despised the shame. Why? For the joy that was ultimately set before him. If God allowed him to go through all of that, how much more so we, if ultimately we can endure the pain and despise the shame for the glory that's also set before us. See, because we have a living hope. And our living hope is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 for a second. Ephesians chapter 2. This is just amazing because what he says is this. Praise God. Blessed be the Father. The word blessed is the word praise or what we get in English, the eulogy. To praise a person. To, uh, in this particular context, it only means the only one worthy is God to be praised. But what he's saying is this. Praise the Lord. Why? Because it was in his great mercy that we are born again to a living hope. In Ephesians 2, we read this, And you, folks, were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as everybody else. We were all sinners. We were all, lost. we were all lost for all eternity. We were all separated from God. We were all born with a sin defect. We were all messed up. And he says, and you were just like that. He says, and you know what? But God, being rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And it's by grace you have been saved. And we were raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For it's by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so none of us can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we, we should walk in them. You see that? We were dead, but God stepped into the picture and by his great mercy. The word mercy means this. Mercy is an outward manifestation of pity. It assumes the need on the part of him who receives it and, re and, and the resources adequate to meet the need on the part of him who shows it. He's saying God saw our need and he stepped in and had the resources available to do something about it. But God in his rich mercy, we've been born again. The question is, how is a person born again? We are born again by the work of God, not by the performance of man. It's all God's mercy. He steps in. You believe what God says about Jesus Christ, and he causes you to come to life again spiritually. It's not what you've done. You can't do anything. Your hope better not be centered on yourself because you are hopeless. You can't get to the presence of God. You'll never get to heaven if your hope is founded upon yourself and your abilities and your performance. You're not going to make it. But if your hope is founded upon a living hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and you believe what God says, that Jesus Christ came and died for your sins, and your hope is founded upon his resurrection, then you know what? Then you are born again into a living hope because it's done by the work of God through the power of the resurrection of Christ. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we are all to be pitied. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, we have no hope. If Jesus doesn't come back from the dead, our hope is dead just like everybody else in this world. But we're born again according to a living hope. Our hope is alive. You know, after the resurrection, it was said that the early church would go around saying to each other, He is risen. And the response was, He is risen indeed. He is alive. And it changed Peter's life from a man who was a coward to a man who preached on Pentecost. Turn with me to the book of Acts for a second and look at the difference between this guy who wimped away from a little girl to a guy who stood up in front of thousands of people. 
In Acts chapter 2, we read this. Look at verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs with which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. And God raised him again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. We go on to verse 31. He says, He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised again, to which we are all witnesses. Could you imagine the boldness of this fisherman who ran away from a little girl and said, I don't even know who he is. I don't even know what you're talking about. To a man who stood up before uh, thousands of people and said this, you killed him. But God raised him from the dead. And we saw him. And because we saw him, our lives will never be the same again. Our hope is based on a living Savior. Do you understand what we're talking about when we talk about the Christian faith? Our faith is founded upon undeniable and irrefutable historical evidence. Our salvation is as secure as the resurrection is sound. Our salvation is as secure as the resurrection is sound. We have a living hope because Jesus is alive. And what he's saying to people as they're going through suffering is this. Don't worry about what you're going through. Because the worst thing can happen is that they'll kill you. But you will be raised again just as God raised Jesus. He has raised us into the heavenly places. And when we die physically, absent from the body, and we'll be present with the Lord. And Jesus said, if it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you that. But I'm preparing a place for you. Right now, as we are here suffering on earth in our own ways, God has prepared a place for us for all of eternity. And he said, if that wasn't true, I wouldn't lie to you and say that. But because it is, one day you'll be with me. That's some good hope. That's something to expect and to look forward to. That's not wishful thinking or some fantasy island thing. This is based on what we see here. And no wonder Peter said this. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Now see, we just don't get it because some of us are just so afraid to just praise the Lord. I notice, you ever notice that? Like sometimes you really feel like clapping when we're singing songs. You feel like it. You know, your spirit's going, man, I wish I could clap, but you know what? I don't know how. I don't, I, we got to have people up here to tell us how to clap. All right, here's how we're going to do this. The problem with that is that's somebody externally trying to tell you and encourage something that you want to do anyway. Sometimes you just want to go, oh, man, praise the Lord. I would hope. Sometimes you don't even know what I'm talking about. That's a scary thought. Oh, I got some, thanks, though. And I wouldn't drink anything that you give me. <laughs> but thanks anyway. Now, if I was a sensitive, compassionate, caring kind of guy, I would have just took that and said, thank you. But you know what? He who began a good work in me isn't quite done yet. Which leads us to number two. Six reasons to be hopeful. Here's the second one. We have a permanent inheritance. We have a permanent inheritance. Think about how important this is. Now, for some of you, I know it's going to be a stretch, but try to remember back just a few weeks to our study of the book of Ruth. We did? Yeah, we did. (laughs) Remember how important it was for a Jewish family to maintain their inheritance. I would hope that we saw how important that was. You know, so they can maintain their land, they can maintain their name, and inheritance to a Jewish person was of extreme importance because God had promised them that land, and that was their land, and in fact it was their land, and it is their land for all of eternity because that was the promise God made. That's why every 50 years they'd cancel the debts, and it would go back to the original landowner. That's why it was so important to have a son who would carry the name. Anyway, the point is this. 
Now put yourself in the position of a Jewish person who comes to faith and believes in Jesus Christ. Now you are persecuted and you're kicked out of your You don't know whether you'll ever be taken back to that land. You don't know whether that land will ever return to you. You don't know whether the Roman Empire and the Roman army is going to honor the 50 year, 50th year Jubilee. You don't know whether you're ever going to be back there again. Now you're scattered in a foreign land and among foreign people and you don't have any place that you can call home anymore. This is who he was writing to. They understood what he was talking about. And this is also what we need to understand as well. He's saying this. We can be hopeful because our inheritance is a permanent one. You notice what he says? It's a permanent inheritance. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Let's go down through real quick. It's imperishable. It can never perish. It'll never be destroyed. It'll never fade away. Remember when Jesus said this? Hey, put your treasures where? In heaven. Why in heaven? Because rust and moth won't destroy it. Thieves can't break in and steal it. Go ahead and, and put yourself and put your treasures in heaven because it's imperishable. Heaven will not spoil or fade or rot. It's an inheritance that's imperishable. The second thing he says is this, and it can never perish, ever. It's like God's preservative program. You know, we got ding-dongs and ho-hos that'll last 50 years on a shelf, right? Well, but think how much more so this inheritance will last if it's, if it's God who's the one that's preserving it. It says it'll never perish. It'll never spoil. It'll never fade. The word is undefiled. This is really important because what it means is this. It's not stained in any way and it cannot be obtained in any other manner other than the manner by which God has ordained it. Listen how important this is. Now, any of you who, who are in business, any of you who have ever been involved in youth athletics knows how true this is. There are some things in life that are definitely defiled. And here's the way that works. You ever have a kid on a team that doesn't have the ability to be there, but maybe his dad or her dad bought the team uniforms? Everybody knows it, but no one really cares because uniforms look pretty good. You ever have someone that's actually on a team that makes a certain level because their dad raises enough money for the booster club that, you know, this kid really shouldn't be on the varsity, but hey, his dad raised a ton of money, so we'll go ahead and stick him up there. You all know what I'm talking about here? How about maybe in business, certain things happen, little backdoor back business transactions, little under-the-table stuff going on. Listen to me. None of that. There's no politics in God's heaven. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Think about this. Now, that's something to shout about, isn't it? Because there's only one way you can get in. And that's by the narrow gate, by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You know, it's amazing to me because I hear people all the time say, but, but, but what about all these other people who, quote, believe in God? And they're doing good stuff. Hey, look at it this way. All they're doing is they're trying to buy a uniform to get themselves into heaven. That's all they're doing. That's all it is. That's all they're doing. They may not say that. They're raising money for the booster club, but God didn't have a booster club. He didn't need one. He didn't need to get stroked from the booster club. Hey, you're doing a good job, coach. We really love you. And here's some money. He didn't need that. He's saying this, guess what? My program's undefiled. You can't get in any other way. There's no backdoor approach. You can't buy uniforms to get in. You can't buy enough hymnals in a church. You can't even have your name etched in a stained glass window somewhere. It isn't going to work for you. It doesn't happen. The only way you're getting in is how? By putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That gate is very narrow, but Jesus says, I am that gate. I am that way, the truth and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Our inheritance is undefiled. There's no other way to get in. And as far as I'm concerned, I love that. Because I hate all the rest of that stuff. Just nauseates you after a while. It's undefiled. And it's kept in heaven for you. Listen to me. Our inheritance, inheritance is reserved by God. Our reservation number, our confirmation number is protected by God. Next week, Lynn and I are going to be gone. We're going to celebrate our anniversary. The second year celebration of our 20th anniversary. That's what we're celebrating. <clears throat> and and, and here, here's one thing. that You, you know how this works. Okay, we've got a room that's reserved for us. We've got airline seats that are reserved for us. Well, when were those seats and when was that room reserved? The minute we made the commitment, right? Now, when are we going to realize those seats in those rooms? When we go. And that's only, hopefully, if they didn't screw up the reservations. <laughs> Have you been there before? 
but, 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 but we, got, we got a confirmation number. Oh, let me check the computer again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but we can't find your name. Look again! You know how it is? Now listen to this. This is great. We got a place reserved in heaven for us the day that you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. We're not going to realize that till we get there, but the wonderful thing about it is God's not going to screw up the reservations. You're not going to get there and he's going to go, Who are you? I'm sorry. Peter... No, you've blown it too many times. I'm not going to put you on the reservation desk. You know, see, we don't have to worry about that. It's reserved for us. It's kept for us. It's protected for us. It has our name on it for all eternity. And the only time we'll realize it completely is when we get there. But the moment that you invited Christ in your life, that reservation was made in your name under the name of Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? Think about this. It's so easy to understand. We're going to stay at a hotel and the reservations are named under someone that we know who's the general manager. We didn't even have to give them our credit card number. We didn't have to do anything. All we have to do is get there and say, we're here under this name. What a wonderful illustration. When we get to heaven, all we have to do is say, we're here. Reservations for one under the name of Jesus Christ. Is that cool or what? How about some hopefulness there, huh? That's some good stuff. That's good. I like that. Anyway, which also is another way of me telling you that Mark Vaughn will be filling in for me next week. And, uh, and uh, in two weeks, we'll take a look at, we'll continue this. But number three, and this is really important too, we have a divine protection. It's kept for us. How? Who through faith, look, are shielded by the power of God. It's protected by God. You know, one of the things that kills the hope in most believers is this, that somehow or another, that you and I, when we fail, are going to get cut by God. We blew it at work, we got fired. We made a mistake on a team, and we got cut or demoted to second or third team. We've blown it in life, and everywhere we've been in life, it's been, that, that, that failure has been responded to by You've lost some position of privilege. Check this out. Our reservation is protected by the power of God. Not by our own performance, not by our own abilities, not by our own strength, not by whether we fail or not fail, because when we're faithless, He is still faithful. Romans 8 says, What can separate us from the love of God? And the answer that God gives is nothing. Not even death, not life, not angels, not principalities, not darkness, not suffering, not trials, not turmoil, not failure on our part. Nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I meet so many believers who have lost hope or their hope is starting to die because they failed in life and somehow they feel that God has cut them from His team. That is not possible because God is not like man he cannot tell a lie and if he says your reservation is protected by the power of God for all eternity then you know what I believe what he says and how powerful is God well here's the way I look at it if God can speak the universe into existence with a word and God said let there be light and there was light if God said that and the world came into existence then don't you think if God says he has reserved your spot in eternity and he protects it, that it will be protected? Don't you think? I would think. And that gives us a whole bunch of hope. There's nothing that will separate us from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. Our hope, our faith rests upon an object and our faith rests upon, in this particular case, the power of God to keep us as his children. Man, I love that. That's good stuff. How about this one? Here's a good one too. Number four. The fourth reason to be hopeful. We have a developing faith. A developing faith. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in order in all kind of trials. 
These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We have a developing faith. What I mean by that is this. There's a moment in your life, as in my life, where we must put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. From that day forward, that is what we're talking about, where he who has begun a good work in you will continue it until the day that we see Jesus Christ again face to face whether it's the day he comes back or the day he calls us home to heaven where we will obtain our inheritance. What he's saying is, is that, you know what? The moment that you put your faith and trust in Christ, the Spirit of God resides in you. You come alive spiritually and God begins to do a work in your life. And so we're all work in progress, which is really good. And so what that encourages me and it helps me understand is this. You know what? I have not yet arrived. Even the Apostle Paul said, whatever things were behind, I leave them behind. And I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm moving forward. Just as Peter learned, hey, I made a mistake, but you know what? God's forgiven me, and now I'm moving forward. I'm growing. I'm learning. I'm moving in the right direction. Sometimes we take three or four steps back, but God's not done with us yet, and he moves us forward in life. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. How is God best going to accomplish that purpose of moving us forward spiritually? And the Bible says this. Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you will be perfect and complete children of God, lacking in nothing. None of us like this, but I'm just going to tell it to you flat out and straight so you understand it. God uses suffering in our life to produce spiritual growth. And you know what? And I can't find any other, any other way that God causes growth in our life that works better than suffering. Now, there isn't anybody here that when you're saying your prayers says, God, I want to be a more mature Christian. I want to grow in my faith. And what I want to do is suffer. Bring it on. Bring it on. Cause me to suffer. I want to suffer because I know the end result. Now, I don't know about you. But I think there's going to be some day when we look back that we wish we would have prayed that God would have made us suffer more so we could have grown faster. Maybe. But Peter learned that, you know what? The best growth that took place in his life was when he was broken into little teeny pieces. That's fascinating. True story. A friend of mine, young guy, pastor of a church, he, he fell into sexual sin. He's no longer a pastor of a church. Broken, destroyed. He's now working in business. And, and we still have a good relationship and we get to talk on a regular basis. And now he's with all these salesmen in this business community. And so they went around the room one day and they said, um, okay, uh, where'd you come from? They kind of introduced themselves to a big sales meeting. Oh, where'd you come from? Oh, I came from such and such a company and I was sales manager, blah, blah, blah. Oh, where'd you come from? Oh, I, you know, I was in sales in another area, but not this particular area. Oh, where'd you come from? Well, you know, so, hey, where'd you come from? Well, I used to be a pastor. <laughs> really? Why aren't you a pastor anymore? Here's why. I fell into sexual sin. I screwed up. I made a mistake. Didn't think it was the right thing to do to continue in that ministry at this point in time in my life. And God opened the door for me to come and do something else. You know what he said to me? He goes, Chuck, you know what's amazing? When everything else is taken from your life, you realize that all you have left is only that which is important. And the most important thing that I could share with this group of guys isn't a technique on how you're going to be able to sell more and make more money, but it was the fact that God loves people and he restores broken hearts and he puts them together and he makes them whole and he takes dead people spiritually and he raises them from the dead and he gives them new life in Jesus Christ. Because the only thing I had left to talk to him about was God's love for me in my life despite all my failures. Wow. Interesting, isn't it? I'm afraid as we would go around a room and ask a similar question, oh, who are you and what are you all about? That some of us would forget. We're aliens and we're strangers and we're in a foreign land and we're here to do one thing. And that's just tell people of the love of God that's found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Because when everything else is taken away, that's the only valuable thing that we have left to offer the people around us. It's the only thing that matters. We have a developing faith that we're growing, we're learning, and the way that God does it is He takes us through heart-wrenching times of suffering. And you know what's wonderful about it? 
is that here's what I've learned through suffering in my life. I've learned this, that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am a child of God because how we respond to suffering is an indication of who we are spiritually. Only God's people can say, praise the Lord, when an x-ray comes back and says, you know what, we think it's cancer. Only God's people can praise the Lord when someone that you love and you get a phone call says, so-and-so has just died. Only God's people can say praise the Lord when they're unemployed and they're looking for a job and know that, you know what, but God's faithful. Only God's people can say praise the Lord when they're going through all the variety of suffering and trials that are here to, to, to be had on this earth and still have a peace about it and a smile on their face, not in a flippant way, but in a, in a peaceful way, an assuring way, and in a confident way that, you know what, God's not done with me yet. And he's not done with you yet. He who began a good work and you will perfect it and continue to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For those of you, how many of you have been here as long as, as, as I've been teaching this class? How many of you? A handful of you. Let me ask you. Well, I'm not going to ask you but because you try to get even with me. But hey, you know what? For people who know me, am I the same person that I was 12 years ago? And that's why you're still here. <laughs> They were waiting. They'd just been waiting. The rest of the people left a long time ago. <laughs> but the point of the matter is, is that I'm not the same person that I was. And you're not the same person that you were. And you know what? And thank God that God's not done yet. And there's hope for all of us in the future because he's moving us along in a really good direction. You know what I'm saying? Some of us have just no hope because we think our situation at home or in life is hopeless. It's not hopeless. God's just not done yet. Do you understand that? And the one wonderful way that we know we're children of God is by God allowing us to suffer because you know what? It's through suffering that we realize that we really are a child of God. You know what's amazing to me and uh, as we, as we uh, wrap this up is I was thinking about Job as I was writing that. You remember what Satan accused Job? Satan accused Job before God and said, you know what? Oh yeah, he loves you. He's got a great family. He's got all those kids. He's got a great business. He's making a ton of money. He's got all the material goodies the world has to offer. He's healthy. Yeah, no wonder anybody could love you if that's what you had to offer them. And God said, no, you don't understand. He doesn't love me because of those things. He said, in fact, I'll prove it. Take them all away from him. And you know what? And what was all said and done, the family was gone, the possessions were gone, the money was gone, the job was gone, the title was gone, uh, the health was gone. Everything was gone except for what? except for his love of God. Because he said, Naked I've come into the world, and naked I'm going out. But blessed be the name of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Because I've got an inheritance that's waiting for me, that's imperishable, can't spoil, it's undefiled, not polluted, it's reserved and kept by the power of God. I've got a whole lot of reasons to be hopeful. And you know what? And he never cursed, and he never sinned before God with his lips. Number five, another reason to be hopeful. We have an unseen Savior. Though you have not seen him. I haven't seen him. I have not seen Jesus. You have not seen Jesus. But you know what? You still love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him. You're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. I haven't seen him, but I know that he's there. You know what's interesting to me is that I can't help but think about Peter standing in a room with Thomas who said, you know what? I don't believe what you guys said. I don't believe that Jesus has risen from the dead until I see Him with my own eyes, until I touch Him with my own hands. You know what? Until I can put my hands in His wounds and have some physical evidence, I don't believe you. Okay. Jesus shows up. Stands before Thomas, the doubter. Thomas says what? He falls on his face and says, My Lord and my God. Oops. Jesus says, hey, Thomas, come on, put your hands here, stick your finger in here, stick your finger, you want, what? <laughs> Not necessary. See, what Peter is saying is the same thing Jesus said to that group in that room that day. He says, you know what? Blessed are all of you who having not seen him yet, you still believe in him. You still love him. He's there. And what it reminds me of is this. When I am suffering and going through difficult times here on earth that God is using to produce growth, there is one person who is a constant companion and always by my side. Though I can't see him, I know that he's there. And that's Jesus Christ himself. Just like when the guys were in the fiery furnace and the angel of the Lord appeared and only they could see him and their captors could not. 
We are the same way, folks. They can't see. The world can't see. And I'm not talking about Harvey the Invisible Rabbit. I'm talking about a risen Savior who is present through all the trials and suffering of our life. And He is there, just like that poem, Footprints in the Sand. Where were you, God? Hey, you know what? I never disappeared, but when you couldn't handle it, I picked you up and I carried you. That's why you only see one set of footprints. Folks, even though we don't see Him, we still love Him and we believe in Him because we know that He's there. And the last hope that we have is this. We have a guaranteed deliverance. We have a guaranteed deliverance. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. A guaranteed deliverance. The world guarantees so many things. Oh, we guarantee you next day mail. It's next month. We guarantee you your luggage will arrive safely with you. Well, they don't really say that. We just, they say we guarantee your luggage will arrive safely. Doesn't mean it's going to be with you. It will arrive safely. You are in Hawaii, your bags are in Switzerland. But we just came to tell you they got there safely. The world is filled with guarantees. We're all guaranteeing each other certain things. I thought about that clothier guy. You ever see that guy, a little clothier guy, suits and stuff? I guarantee it. I guarantee it. Well, thank God that God isn't a clothier or someone that ships parcels or someone that sends baggage somewhere. God guarantees the salvation of our soul. You know what? And and let me just close on this. There are so many of us who are being led to believe in a variety of ways that somehow or another that our relationship with God can be lost if we mess up. If we blow it, somehow or not, we're not children of God anymore. We've been cut from His team. How in the world Can anybody who reads the Bible objectively, studies what we just learned today, ever in their own heart believe that there is anything that could ever separate you from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ? It is absolutely impossible for you who have been born again by God to ever lose your relationship with God by blowing it in this life. Absolutely impossible. And don't let the lies of the pit of hell ever deceive you into believing otherwise. For those who have been born again into a living hope by the power and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by the washing and the regeneration of the Spirit of God, you who have been born again by God are born again for all eternity and God will protect that inheritance which is undefiled and imperishable and unreserved and kept in heaven for you for all of eternity. And one day soon we will realize how true that is. And right now that's time to shout praise the Lord and give us hope to go on through the sufferings of this world because God is not done in our life. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your truth. We thank you for this living hope that we have. God, there's nothing like it on the face of the earth that even begins to compare to it. Now if we could just live our life assured of such a hope and move with confidence to the future as you who began a good work in us the day that we believed in Jesus Christ. We believe that you will continue to perfect it until the day that we're with him again, whether in heaven or whether when he comes to get his saints. And God, we just praise you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.